Keep your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 as we are looking at that passage this morning. We're not going to look at everything in there, just sort of the main idea uh, in there. So there's a lot more certainly we could talk about. But in, uh, in 1966, John Lennon of Beatle fame uh, said something that uh, many people uh, felt at the time, and that was this. He said that Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right and will be proved right. Well, as we've seen in the last 54 years, that actually around the world, Christianity has actually grown. It has not shrunk, as well as other uh, world religions. And many people were shocked by that. A Pew study came out a few years ago talking about this, and people were so surprised. In fact, one person wrote in to the Washington Post uh, expressing the sentiment of many. He wrote, it's easy to get rid of religion just by educating people about other religions or giving them a secular, non-biased look at the history of religion that any given kid has been raised in. Saying if we just were educated enough and people knew enough, had enough science, had enough knowledge, uh, enough logical thinking, religion would go away. And, uh, and many people uh, have felt that way. And even though religion has continued to grow, I think uh, many have, uh, have been somewhat, um, I don't know if the word is embarrassed, that might be the right word, but, um, but yeah, embarrassed is probably the right word about Christianity at, uh, in, in our day and age. Uh, it, we feel the pressure that it feels a bit out of date, a bit quaint. Um, in fact, something we think that talking to most secular people, we're thinking they're not going to believe this. They're not going to embrace this. They think of us sort of like flat earthers and put us in sort of the same sort of category. And uh, in fact, we are, are oftentimes a little bit shy about talking about it because we face questions like, how can you believe that Jesus is the only way to God. How can you be so bigoted as to think that your religion has an exclusive hold on truth? Uh, how can you believe that God created the world? Are you anti-science? Don't you know what we've been learning the past few hundred years? And then there are questions about human sexuality uh, and where if you believe the Bible is true, you're labeled a hate monger and a bigot. And so let's face it. Orthodox biblical Christianity is unfashionable today. And uh, in fact, if we're honest, we're a bit embarrassed. And so oftentimes we ask ourselves, how can we possibly get people to see the beauty of Christ when they find Christianity so offensive? What will it take to get secular people to believe? And there's this temptation, this pressure to think, maybe we need to do something differently with the message. Maybe we've got to enhance this some way so that the people of our day will embrace this, to make it you know, a little more relevant and a little more you know, appealing to people. Well, that was the situation that they were facing in Corinth. Uh, Corinth was a Corinth was an up-and-coming city of the Roman Empire. It was uh, situated in Greece, but it was a Roman city. And people would move to Corinth because it was the place to go to make your name. You know, it's kind of like you'd go to New York because if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere, right? And so you go to New York or LA. And so if you go to New York or you're LA, and particularly if you're from like flyover country, uh, you're very aware that you don't fit in and you want to fit in. You want, you want to fit in with the people there. You want to, you want to, you know, fit in with the elites. And that's how Corinth was. Everyone was worried about status. Everyone was worried about looking sophisticated about, you know, they didn't probably use the word cool, but being cool back then. And, uh, and so they wanted to fit in and you didn't want to seem like 
you know, a country bumpkin, you know, a rube. And, uh, and one of the embarrassing things was this gospel message, and particularly the Apostle Paul, as he preaches this gospel message. But as we look at what the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians here, about how to, to proclaim the gospel and the power of the gospel there in Corinth, we can learn about how we can be about confident about the gospel message even here today in our world. So how can we be confident about the gospel as we present it to skeptics and those around us? Well, the first step we see is that we must resist the temptation. We must resist the temptation to alter the gospel in order to make it more appealing. We must resist the temptation. This is a very strong force that was happening in Corinth, and it is a very strong force that is happening in our culture today. As we, some people look at certain aspects of Christianity, certain aspects that the Bible teaches, and they say, you know, that's just not going to fly in the 21st century. That might have worked in the 1950s, but that's not going to work now. We need to alter this in order to, you know, otherwise Christianity is going to die out if we're going to be relevant to a modern age. But Paul here, uh, as he begins chapter two, by the way, uh, chapter divisions were not originally written when Paul wrote his letters. He didn't say chapter one, chapter two. These were added a long time later. And so because of that, sometimes the chapter divisions actually get a little bit in the way because he's continuing his same thought from chapter one. And as he continues the same thought, in chapter one, he was talking about how the gospel seems foolish to the people of this world. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. And the word he uses there, it's, a, it's scandalous. It's a scandal. Uh, because this idea of a dead Messiah makes no sense. That Christ would not come in power. Same problem for the, for the Greeks, for the Romans. Because they so respected power. And here you have this weak Messiah who's crucified and put to death. And of course then rises again from the dead. Which to the Romans, that just seemed crazy. Uh, that you would believe in something like the resurrection. And so, so it seems foolish. Uh, the gospel seems foolish. And it had no natural appeal to the people of Corinth. Yet despite this, Paul says in verse 2 of our chapter... For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, I know this seems crazy to the people of Corinth, but this is the gospel truth. We, I, I decided to know nothing among you. We cannot alter this message. This is where everything stands and falls. Just because the gospel seems offensive, just because it doesn't fit cultural norms, we cannot alter the gospel to make it more appealing. And so Paul makes no apology for the gospel message, and he makes no effort to tone it down. Instead, he says uh, that we know that some will trip over it, but we still must proclaim it without compromise. Any attempt to make the gospel more palatable to the expectations of fallen humanity will not only distort the gospel, it will destroy it. If you, if, you, if you distort the gospel, you destroy Christianity, you don't save it. And so Paul warns against that. The cross of Christ will always be scandalous. It will always seem foolish to those who want to be independent of God. Mark Lilla, as a professor formerly at Chicago University of Chicago, now at Columbia University, and he wrote uh, an article uh, in the New York Times called Get Religion, and he explains how he lost his. And, and he writes uh, this, he said, uh, talks about he was reading in his Bible, and he comes across the story of Nicodemus. 
And you remember Nicodemus is uh, an intellectual elite for Israel. He's, uh, he's one of the Sanhedrin. He is a, he's a teacher. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Lilla writes, Jesus seems to be telling Nicodemus that he must recognize his own insufficiency, that he'll have to turn his back on his autonomous, seemingly happy life and be reborn as a human being who understands his dependency on something greater. That seems like a radical challenge to our freedom, and it is. And that's why Lilla rejects it. At least he's rejecting the true gospel, right? He understands that Christ is challenging our freedom, saying that we have to recognize our need and our dependence on him. It was offensive to him, and he said, I can't follow that. The gospel is an affront to human autonomy. The word gospel means good news. Good news is offered in contrast to the bad news. Uh, The bad news is we are sinners. We are under judgment for our rebellion against God. We cannot save ourselves. No amount of self-help instructions or gumption will enable us to fix ourselves. Uh, Furthermore, we were never even made to live life on our own. Our, Our dependence on God is not a defect, it's a feature of our humanity. And this is an affront to human beings who want to be independent of God. And so that's, that's offensive. It's an offensive particularly in a culture where freedom is listed as the highest value. But the good news is, in contrast to the bad news, that Jesus Christ has come into the world, that out of love for his people, Jesus died for sinners. And through him, you can have eternal life, you can know the Father's love, you can, you can be at peace, and know the comfort that God is with you and he'll never leave you nor forsake you. But to embrace the good news, you have to believe the bad news and the bad news is offensive. So while the gospel uh, is offensive, it's offensive because our, our, our world wants us to say, you're okay, you just need a little improvement. You're okay, here are just 10 steps to, to making your life better. It's a, uh, you know, they, they want the gospel to be good advice on how to improve your life. But the, the, the gospel is you cannot improve your life. Your only hope is in a crucified savior. And that gospel's offensive. But while the gospel is offensive, Here's something Paul is going to later on, and we have to see this in the context of the whole book. He's going to later on emphasize the gospel is offensive, but that doesn't mean you need to be offensive. And, and we oftentimes confuse these two things uh, about our offense and the offense of the gospel. Sometimes we give unnecessary offense to people coming to, uh, to Christ. We put unnecessary stumbling blocks there. Uh, we, we take things that are our personal preferences and we elevate them to, uh, to being that is, which is sacred, things that are non-scriptural, things that uh, we just prefer. We put up stumbling blocks to people coming to faith that are not, uh, merely, uh, that are not biblical, but merely artifacts of our own cultural preferences. We put culture, our culture, above their needs. Later on in chapter nine of this same letter, the apostle Paul is gonna say that's, that's, a, that's wrong too. He says, he says I, you know, and when I was reaching out to the Greeks, I became like a Greek. Reaching out to the Jews, I became like a Jew. Reaching out to those under the law, I became as one under the law. He said, I became all things to all men in order that by all means I might win some. And so Paul is saying we're to remove unnecessary stumbling blocks to the gospel, do everything we can to adapt, to be culturally appropriate, but with the gospel itself should be the thing that is giving the offense. 
So according to Paul, you're not compromising the gospel when you remove unnecessary stumbling blocks. In fact, according to Paul, you're actually compromising the gospel if you're not willing to do so. If you're not willing to remove the unnecessary stumbling blocks, then you're making an idol of your cultural preferences and you're placing that above the gospel message and the mission of the church. So Paul says, let the gospel be the offense, not you. The offense of the cross cannot be removed. The teaching of God's word cannot be changed to suit the cultural taste. And so we must, uh, we must not be ashamed of the gospel in that way. So negatively, resist the temptation, resist the temptation to alter the gospel to make it more palatable. But now he's going to go on to positively, positively we must realize that the gospel message in and of itself is sufficient. It is sufficient. Instead of altering the gospel in order to make it more appealing, must see the gospel by itself, unadulterated, unaided, is sufficient to change lives. And, and it appears uh, that Paul, Paul was somewhat of an embarrassment to the people of Corinth. Because you remember, Corinth is a city where everyone is trying to be sophisticated. Paul is coming, you know, he's a Jew, he's from Tarsus, he's from uh, far away. He's sort of a... Now, he's sort of a country bumpkin compared to, the, to these people. He doesn't, he doesn't speak with the eloquence that, uh, that uh, some of the speakers would speak with. And so, so he's a bit of an embarrassment. And he alludes to this in different places, including in this chapter. In verse 1, notice what he says. He says, I did not come with lofty speech or wisdom. You know, he, he just doesn't have that, you know, that, that pizzazz uh, that, that you would want in a famous speaker. Verse three, he says he came with in weakness and fear and much trembling. So Paul's going around sharing the gospel and he's shaking like a leaf, you know? You think of Paul, Mr. Courageous. He's saying, no, that's not how I came. I came, I was a little bit afraid. And then in verse four, he said his speech and his message were not implausible. Uh, that's uh, another way to translate would be in persuasive words of wisdom. He's, you know, he just, he just says, I just don't talk good, you know? Uh, I, I, I don't have that, that skill of the way the Corinthians would speak. By the standards of the elites, Paul was not a great speaker. Uh, he, was, uh, he was educated, but to the Corinthians, he was something of a hick. And so uh, he lacked their polish. Yet Paul says that despite his fear, his trembling, his stumbling over his words, his lack of sophistication, guess what happened when Paul preached? People got converted. My parents uh, became Christians in a small church in Alabama that grew into being a, a mega church. And uh, the pastor, a man named Frank Barker, still alive. Uh, Frank, uh, people have heard his name because he's led people all over the world to Christ, like literally thousands. And I remember one time we invited Frank to speak at my church in Orlando. And everyone was so excited because they've heard about the great Frank Barker. I don't know how many of you have ever heard Frank preach. Uh, you may never have heard of him. Frank gets up and he kind of mumbles. I'm not kidding. He mumbles. He's got that Auburn, Alabama accent, not the University of Alabama accent, but the Auburn one. And, he's, um, and he gets up there and he kind of mumbles and, and he's just like unimpressive. And yet God works. God just works. People are converted. Lives are changed. And, and, and so you think about this, you think, well, you know, he's not that sophisticated. He's not, you know, he doesn't speak that well. What, instead of that being a weakness, that actually is a testimony to the power of the gospel. It's not 
Paul's words. It wasn't Frank's words. It wasn't their eloquence, their skill that led to people being converted. You can't explain it that way because it just by human standards, they didn't seem to have it. So what was, was, was it that worked? The gospel itself is powerful enough to work. You don't have to be that good, is what Paul is saying. I wasn't that good, and yet the gospel works. He says people are being converted. God is drawing people to himself. In the 1880s, a group of uh, American pastors went to London. They wanted to hear some of the great preachers of the day, and they first went to this church where a very famous, eloquent speaker, actually we've all forgotten his name by this time, I was preaching 4,000, 5,000 people, mega church in London in 1880s, and they left there, and all the pastors were saying, wow, what an amazing preacher. What an amazing preacher. The next Sunday, they went to uh, hear uh, Charles Spurgeon preach. And they went to Spurgeon's church, and they left the church that Sunday saying, what an amazing Savior. What an amazing Savior. Do you see the difference? One by the preaching's drawing attention to himself, the other's drawing attention to Christ. And, 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 it's, and so, not that Spurgeon wasn't eloquent, he was extremely eloquent, but the focus is on Jesus. And, and Paul is saying the same thing, that as I preach the gospel, it's not my words to convince you. See, if, if someone could convince you through their eloquence, then they can unconvince you through their eloquence. If someone can convince you through their methodology, through technique, through, through ginning up your emotions, then that can be undone. And so what Paul is saying is the gospel that changes lives. I, I find that so encouraging because I stumble over my words so much and will say the wrong thing and, uh, and think, you know, God can work through that. I think many of us are afraid to talk to our friends about Jesus because we're afraid, what, what if I don't have the right answers? What if I don't say the right thing? I'm not that smooth. I, I need to get someone else to talk to Jesus about them because I don't know what to do. And I actually believe this is a satanic attack on the church to keep you quiet. It is his way of tricking you into thinking it's all about you when it's not about you at all. It's not about you at all. The gospel is the power to change lives. Again, back to Spurgeon, paraphrase him. Uh, a bit. He says, you know, and he didn't say it exactly this way, but this is how he's been quoted. He said, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend the lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. In the same way, our calling is just let the gospel loose. Let it go. Speak it out and watch how God works. Now, that doesn't mean we don't, we don't learn how to present. Paul clearly thought through his letters. He clearly thought through his arguments. He had apologetic arguments. He, he understood the times. He, he studied hard. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the apostle Paul converted no one, no one. God does the work. And as long as you think it's about you, you're going to be paralyzed in fear and you're not gonna speak up and you're gonna think, no one is gonna believe this. This is too crazy. Resurrection, miracles, and you know, that the, the, the morals of the Bible are true. This just makes no sense to the people of our day. The gospel is the power. You're not. Let it loose. Let it loose. Which then leads us to... Uh, the final point that Paul makes in this chapter. Remember, the Holy Spirit is powerful. Remember, the Holy Spirit is powerful. I think, again, we, 
One of the reasons many of us are afraid to share our faith is we think if it's going to be, it's up to me. We are humanists to the core. Uh, We think we're the ones who have to convert people. We're the ones who have to convince them. We're the ones who have to change them. And uh, and Paul's point is, uh, is that no, it's the Holy Spirit who changes lives. The Holy Spirit. And that's because for a person to come to faith, if that happens, the Holy Spirit must work. Now, and so what he says in verse 14, look at verse 14. He says, the natural person, and by natural person, he means the person who has been unconverted, one who's not yet a Christian, the person without the Holy Spirit in their lives. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. Because they, they just don't make sense. They're foolish to him. It says, this Christianity stuff makes no sense. The natural person does not accept them, the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to discern, understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, if you're thinking there's no way that people who are my friends, my coworkers on my street will ever believe the gospel, Paul is saying, you are right. You cannot convince them. In fact, elsewhere, he says, describes the condition of humanity without the Holy Spirit as being spiritually deaf, spiritually blind, spiritually dead. They cannot, they're totally unable to respond. So when you look at someone saying, there is no way on God's green earth they are ever going to embrace the gospel, you are right, naturally speaking. But what you're missing is that the Holy Spirit can change anyone's life. Anyone, no one is out of reach of the Holy Spirit. No one. And so you look at, and so what happens is oftentimes we're thinking, this person's likely to believe, this person's unlikely, and we'll group people like this. They're all unlikely, unless the Spirit of God works, and the Spirit of God can change anyone. And so, uh, and so uh, in fact, later on in chapter 12, he makes this very point. In chapter 12, verse three, he says, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Here again, what's he saying? He's saying for anyone to come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit must work first in their lives. So notice the order of events here. It is not you believe in Jesus and then you get the Holy Spirit. That's not what Paul says. He says, first, the Holy Spirit must work before you're ever able to believe. Uh, You must first be born again, then you believe. The Spirit must first work, bring you to life, then you're able to believe because without the Spirit, no one can say Jesus is Lord. So uh, some conversion, salvation is always, without exception, an act of God. Uh, We don't save, we don't win souls, we don't convert, God does the work from first to last. Now, you might respond to that saying, well, if that's the case, what's the point of sharing the gospel? Why bother if God's the one who does all the works? And that is because God, in his amazing grace, chooses to work through his people to accomplish his purposes. And here's the good news. God can work through you to bring even the most unlikely people to faith in Christ. You know, Paul knew this from his own experience in Corinth. You, know, you may be wondering, how did Paul get to Corinth? Well, Paul was going around preaching in, in uh, Asia Minor, which is Turkey and Greece, and he was preaching, and, 
he'd go places and let's be honest, it didn't go all that well. I mean, people were being converted, but he was beaten, he was imprisoned. Uh, he goes then to Athens, Greece, and he begins arguing with the philosophers and, uh, and, and some people are converted and, and people's lives are changed, but he essentially gets laughed off the stage in Athens and he goes down to Corinth. And now he's going to Corinth and he's preaching and he goes to the synagogue and he gets less than a warm reception, shall we say. And so Paul is a little bit shaken at this point and, and he must have been wondering if he should continue. And then that, that night, uh, God appeared to him in a vision. And here's what God said to him about his ministry there in Corinth. It says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. By the way, pause there. Have you ever been afraid to share the gospel? Okay, my guess is you have. In fact, my guess is your fear has kept you from doing that. The apostle Paul was afraid. If he wasn't afraid, the spirit would not have said to him, do not be afraid. You don't say do not be afraid to someone who's not afraid. You say do not be afraid to someone who's afraid. Paul was afraid, Paul was scared. He was thinking about quitting. He says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Why? For I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. You notice what God is saying? Paul, you're gonna to go to Corinth. And yeah, there have been a couple people coming to Christ, but guess what? I have many already here. Who are those many? Those many are not yet Christians. And yet God says, I have them here. Uh, they are here. I have my people. Paul, all you have to do is you go preach, my people will come forward. They don't even know they're my people yet. They don't even know that. But as you preach, my sheep will hear my voice and they'll respond to my voice and they will come. So, so Paul says, all you have to do is preach, I'll do the rest. God had his people in Corinth, but Paul still had to go and preach. You notice that? God has his people, Paul still has to go and preach. God has his people in Colorado Springs, but guess what? We still have to go and announce the gospel. That's how it works. God calls the people to himself, but he does it through us. The people around us, God has his people, but we must tell them the good news they cannot believe without hearing. God has his people here. We don't know who they are any more than Paul knew who they were in Corinth. The good news is, it's not up to you to convert them. That's not your job. It is up to you to do what Paul did, to announce the good news and watch the spirit go to work. Now, we love our city. Our theme for this, um, for this year, frankly, all the time, but emphasizing this year is for the city. Uh, and, and, and as we are for the city and we love our city, not only do we work hard at not sharing viruses, that's right, we work hard at being contagious Christians, contagious with the gospel, contagious with the good news, because God's spirit is at work here, calling his people to himself, and he's doing it through you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are at work and we pray that you would remove the fear from our hearts that keeps us from sharing the good news. That fear that, that makes us think it's up to our persuasive speech, up to our technique, up to our methodology. Lord, we pray that we would stop being paralyzed by our, our man-centered views. Instead, we would have a God-sized vision for what you can do here in this place. We pray that we would proclaim in all boldness the love of Christ. We pray that we would proclaim it in a winsome way, out of love for them, 
not simply in desire to win arguments because that leads no one to faith, but we would come with well-reasoned thought, yet in the power of the Spirit, and watch you work as you bring the good news to the people around us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.